Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful that you have provided for us in every aspect of our Christian life. You have given us the indwelling Holy Spirit. You've baptized us into union with Christ. Um, You have sealed us. You have regenerated us. And we ask that your teaching ministry through the Holy Spirit would illuminate the meaning of the text, that we our faith would go stronger, for we know that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we uh, are going to uh, finish up uh, in the, no, the one page that, that finally finishes the second chapter on Pentecost, and uh, next week we'll have a handout starting the third chapter, uh, the third event in the New Testament, um, which will be the Acts 15 uh, church council in which the church emerges from Israel. And you begin to see the separation of the church away from Israel. So um, tonight uh, we're going to just briefly review a few things about Pentecost, and then we're going to go through um, most of the doctrines except uh, possibly the, the last two, maybe the last one. We'll see how time, time goes tonight. Um, again, uh, it's not until usually after I teach the series that I finally wind up getting an overhead made for it. But um, if you remember, we have worked with two events. We've worked with the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and we have worked with Pentecost. These two were part of the great events, grand events of the biblical story. They're actual events of history. They occurred at a point in space, a point in time, and they're not figments of religious imagination. They're actual historic events. And following our strategy with the framework of associating a cluster of doctrine with each one of these events, so that in your mind's eye, you can think through the events and imagine the events taking place. At the same time you're imagining the events taking place, you can associate those truths that God attaches to those events. So with Pentecost, uh, we've, we've called the first one, the Ascension, the heavenly origin of the church. And that's because the Ascension is the Lord Jesus Christ going to heaven Uh, getting cleared by the Father, getting approved by the Father to send the Holy Spirit and and begin the church age. Well, that's that's the heavenly origin. And we call it the heavenly origin of the church because it's uh, from the highest heaven that the Bible talks about. Uh, It's a a point that we would say in the the universe somewhere, or, or external to the universe, but it has to be almost a physical thing because of what? Because Jesus Christ's resurrection body. Jesus' resurrection body hasn't gone away. It's, it's someplace. I mean, it may be, you know, five feet, seven, eight inches tall, and it weighs mass. That's his resurrection body. It's somewhere. It's not in the nth dimension. It's got to be a spatial location. So wherever Jesus' resurrection body is, that's the throne of God. I have no idea where that is, but it's someplace. So that's the heavenly origin of the church. Pentecost, remember, was when the Lord Jesus Christ sent the Holy Spirit to earth. 
And you remember we talked about Acts chapter 2. We talked about Peter's use of Joel chapter 2. We said that what Peter did is he quoted Old Testament uh, passages that had to do with spiritual phenomena prior to the kingdom of God starting on earth. And this spiritual phenomena was to be sent by Yahweh or Jehovah. So here's the Old Testament name for God, Jewish name, the covenant name of God. There's Yahweh. And he, in the Old Testament passage, is the one who sends this Holy Spirit. What is remarkable in Acts chapter 2 is that Peter substitutes for Jehovah in that prophecy, Jesus. And there is a powerful example of how the New Testament identifies Jesus Christ as God. Jesus Christ is identified. People always say, oh, well, there's no verse in the Bible that says Jesus is God. Well, yeah, there are four or five direct verses. But there's loads of indirect evidence. And for monotheistic Jews to call a human carpenter and have that man's name substituted in Old Testament texts that talk about God, that's a claim to Jesus' deity. And it's, otherwise, it's blasphemy. So, so we're stuck. We have to say that Jesus is God on the basis of the text, these kinds of texts. Well, we, we talked about that, and we said there were many Pentecosts throughout the book of Acts, and we said that Acts has a structure to it. This book is unlike a lot of books in the Bible. It's like them in the sense it's a historical textbook, but it's unlike them in the sense that there's two trends in the book of Acts. The first trend is that at the very beginning, emphasis is on the nation Israel. Everything is conceived in totally classical Jewish terms. Even in Acts 2, after Pentecost, where are the believers worshiping? Synagogues. They're worshiping in the temple. Are there any Gentiles there? No. They're Jews. It's all Jewish. It's centered on a Jewish temple. It's talking about a Jewish Messiah. There isn't a sign of Gentiles there. It's all heavily Jewish. So, as things go on, so you have Acts chapter 2. Then you come along here and we have Acts chapter 8. And what happens in Acts chapter 8? We have a sort of a mini-Pentecost in Samaria. And what's the significance of that mini-Pentecost in Samaria? The introduction of non-Jews. So now we have the Samaritans, a despised group of people by Jews because they were considered to be half-breeds, people brought into the, the area of the Northern Kingdom after the decline, deliberately transplanted population to try to control politically the Jewish environment there. They have a long history, and the Samaritans, all of a sudden, trust in Jesus Christ, and uh, they experience this manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Same thing as in Acts 2. Then we come along further on in the book of Acts, to Acts chapter 10. And in Acts chapter 10, we... Uh, have the uh, Cornelius. And Cornelius is a Roman Gentile. So now we've got Gentiles added in. So we start out with Jews. 
Then we have Jews plus Samaritans. Now we have Jews plus Samaritans plus Gentiles. Then, in Acts 19, we have a third kind of mini-Pentecost. And at that point, now we introduce people who were followers of John the Baptist, Old Testament saints, separated from the new messianic movement, sort of off by themselves, but had received the word of God through John the Baptist. Now they're integrated. So now we have Jews plus Samaritans plus Gentiles plus people who are operational believers under Old Testament economy. Okay, so that's the trend, trend in Acts. So by the time you get through in Acts, you've got the center of action has moved outside of Jerusalem from Samaria into Judea and into the uttermost parts of the world, which is Acts 1.8, which is what the Lord said he was going to do. So that's the background for this transition. And during this transition, the church becomes more and more visible as an entity distinct from the nation Israel. So that's what we're looking at. And since this event, we've talked about the ascension, and you remember the doctrine that we associate with the ascension? Judgment, salvation. That Jesus Christ, having ascended to the Father's right hand, is both Savior and Judge. So that history is in its last stage, beginning with the ascension. The Lord Jesus has done what he can. He's sacrificed himself. We've secured the basis of salvation for all men. And he's been rejected. He goes to heaven. And he's going to come back. But he's going to come back as judge. First time as savior, second time as judge. So now the world is living inside a bracketed historical period. And that is the last days. And that historical period culminates in Jesus' manifestation as the judge. So it's the countdown for judgment salvation. Well, the doctrines that we're associating with Pentecost now, we've said you can, you can think about them if you can remember the acrostic ribs. R-I-B-S. And if you'll turn in your notes um, to... Let's see. Where did I put that? Page 46. Oh, and by the way, um, because we're going to have a lot more notes before the holidays and after the holidays, if you could uh, donate to the pot for the paper and the copying, uh, it probably run about $5 for the rest of the year all the way into spring. So you could see Carol uh, for that. Appreciate it. Um, we're, going to, we're going to, on page 46, correct something. Up in the top paragraph, last sentence, on page 46, it says, Now we will look at four doctrines about our relationship to Jesus Christ through the post-Pentecostal work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's going to be six doctrines. And the reason I'm doing that is because when we get done, we're going to have six things the Holy Spirit has done for believers. Then we're going to deal with six things the Son has done for believers. And then we're going to deal with six things the Father has done for believers. So I have a sum of 18 different things. So count your many blessings one by one. At least we can count from one to 18. And we're going to deal with these things that are given to church-age believers. 
Okay? All right, the first one we've been studying is regeneration. We've worked with that for three or four weeks. And if you'll learn to associate in your head an image with each one of these doctrines, a picture, the picture to associate with regeneration is creation. It's a recreation. So that's the image mentally. And you remember Genesis 1, God spoke and it was done. Well, the same thing happens in regeneration. The, the God speaks and he begats. And remember, we've several times we've mentioned 1 John, 1 John 3, and 1 John 1. And uh, we've mentioned that's not an easy epistle to go through because you've got apparent contradictions in the epistle where one thing John says we're sinners and the other thing in 1 John 3 he says no man sins. The, the, who, he who has uh, his spirit in him does not sin. And so we say, well, what do you do with that one? And traditionally what theologians tend to do is they make it present tense. So they say person is, uh, that means he doesn't continually sin. Well, remember what I said was, as pointed out by Dr. Zane Hodges, is that if you do that and you take that treatment of the verb in, in, in 1 John 3 about uh, he who has a, he, he, sin sins not, and you continue to use that at other places, you come up with such things as, well, now it says that he doesn't sin, but then it says if you see a brother who does sin. So you, you induce all kinds of problems with the text when you go into it that way. And so we said it's, it's better when you get into a jam like that with the text is to just stop, hold it, and just say, okay, let me let this text say what it wants to say. And then come over here and let me say this text, what it wants to say, and see where it leads us. See if it really does lead to a contradiction. And we said that you have these verses, 1 John 3, 1 John 1, 1 John 5. So how do we handle regeneration? It is the seed of Christ or the new nature of the Lord Jesus Christ that is regenerated, that is the result of regeneration, miraculous creation in the human heart. And what is happening in 1 John 3 is that John the Apostle is looking... Let's turn to 1 John 3 so we see that again. He's looking at a perspective, looking at us as believers, but with a perspective. In other words, you, you look at things from a different angle. And in 1 John 3... When, when you see things like, um, um, see, First John three, nine, and you see something like, no one who is born of God, and on my translation says practices sin, but in the Greek it just says who is born of God sins, because the seed abides in him, he cannot sin because he's born of God. Now that cannot sin sounds strangely parallel to what doctrine did we learn when we were studying about the life of Christ. Remember that? We had a big discussion here about it. impeccability. So this looks funny. It just, you know, it, I haven't concluded, but it, it looks like we've got an impeccability issue going on here. And so the question is, well, what is impeccable? Is the believer impeccable? Well, surely not, because we're all sinners. If we're in need of atonement, we don't have human merit that's perfect, so obviously it, that can't be what the teaching is. 
So how else do you interpret things like verse 9? Well, in verse 6, he's also said the same thing. No one who abides in him sins, and no one who sins has seen him or knows him. That's pretty pretty either-or-ish, and John the Apostle tends to be that way. And yet, on the other hand, in 1 John 1, 1 John 5, we talk about believers sinning. So how do we handle this? And we always said was the best way of doing to keep coherence with the text is to say, okay, what must be going on here is that in the in passages like 1 John 3, he's looking at the new nature. But the new nature is eternal life. That's not contaminated. That's a result of the miraculous manifestation and, and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. So if he's regenerating Christ's life in us, then that's sharing Christ's character. So that's got to be sinless. So if, if he's not talking about the flesh and, quote, the sinner, but he's talking rather about the work of the Holy Spirit, we're okay. We haven't got any problems here yet. And we have biblical support for saying that John looks at it this way because Paul does this in Galatians 2.20. What does he say? Not I who live, but who? Christ lives in me. What does he mean by that? Same thing. He's not claiming sinless perfection, but he's claiming that the life of Christ manifests itself in this regenerate nature. Uh, in Romans 7, he makes that strange statement, it is no longer I who sin, but the flesh kind of thing. Now that, if you read it carelessly, looks like Paul's condoning his own sin. And that can't be. So, in order to approach these texts, you have to slow down, think it through, and realize that these guys approach it from the standpoint of this regenerate nature, the seed that abides in him. Now, I, we won't spend a lot of time on this because we've gone through this two or three times, but it was interesting. Uh, a person uh, gave me a copy of a, a well-known book called The Christ Life by A.B. Simpson. A.B. Simpson was the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance at the turn of the century. And he was responsible for a great outpouring of the gospel and evangelism uh, through Christian Missionary Alliance, through a lot of uh, frontier work and missions work. Very, um, he's a, he's a rep reputed, well-known missionary spokesman. And I was interested in this book, in page 18, listen to what A.B. Simpson says. And, and he was a very, um, very well-prepared man. Uh, people were pretty amazed at what this guy did with his life. He was apparently a tremendous steward of time. He was president of the missionary organization. He started the CMA. He was a pastor. He did this. He did that. Uh, and yet, he wasn't rushing. He just did these things. Life of Christ. And he says, This life is not for himself, but for us. Having risen from the dead, he now comes to relive his life in us. This is the secret of sanctification as it is unfolded in the first epistle of John, and it is the solution of every puzzling problem in connection with that epistle. Perhaps no portion of the New Testament has so many seeming contradictions on the subject of holiness as this epistle. So we're not the first people to observe this. This is A.B. Simpson now in the 1900s. For example, we are told in the first chapter, 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us, 1 John 1, 8. And yet a little later, we're told with equal emphasis, quote, Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God, 1 John 3, 9. Now, how can we these things be reconciled? It's all very simple. First, it is true that we, that is the human we, have sinned and do sin. There is no good in us. And we have renounced ourselves as worthless and helpless. But, on the other hand, we have taken Him to be our life and His life is a sinless one. The seed, and this is an eloquent, I mean, nobody but A.B. Simpson could come up with this illustration. Now listen to this illustration. It's so simple. I think, gosh, you know, why, why don't I think of this? The seed that he plants is as spotless as that beautiful bulb which, when planted in the unclean soil, grows up as pure as an angel's wing, unstained by the soil around it. Now, isn't that an interesting picture? Unstained by the soil around it, the seed, the tulip bulb, grows into this plant. Where is it? It grows in the soil, but it doesn't share the dirt with the soil. Now, you go back to 1 John, what does it say? His seed abides in him. See, it's just addressing the regenerate nature. The key to this whole mystery is supplied by two verses in this epistle. 1 John 3, 6. He that abides in him sins not. Here is the secret of holiness. Not our holiness. Now listen to what A.B. Simpson says here. Not our holiness, but his. There is no account made here of our perfection. But it is only as we cling to him and draw our life each moment from him that we are kept from sin. That is the indwelling life. So here A.B. Simpson was, what, 102 years ago, pointing this out. And, and, and I don't think I've read anything else in all the commentaries and everything else that's any more eloquent than re how you resolve the tensions in 1 John. So that's regeneration. Then last time, we introduced a second thing, the I in ribs, and we said that has to do with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And if you'll turn in your notes to page um, 51 and table 5, and the table numbering got messed up because I wasn't paying attention when I typed the notes. So I think you have two table 4s or two table 5s somewhere in here. Uh, but that's what happens in the first draft. Just got through publish writing this final copy in a published paper in a theological journal and I think we've gone through six revisions and each one is humbling because you realize well gee I didn't punctuate that right this sentence is a run-on sentence and I've read it five times how come I didn't see this before and so you go through this refining process when you write something serious this is not a serious draft um, this is indwelling the indwelling Holy Spirit and Table 5 is my attempt to distinguish the Old Testament way the Holy Spirit indwelled 
from the New Testament way he indwells by just drawing four contrasts. And we went over some of these. The Holy Spirit's ministry in the Old Testament was nation-building. It involved natural talents like carpentry, uh, economics, uh, political sense. Uh, Here's another good illustration. What was the ministry of the Holy Spirit indwelling Samson? It was physical strength. It wasn't necessarily Samson was a great saint. Samson actually was kind of a thug. And uh, he, his job in life was to create a war. It really was. Because the Jews were amalgamating culturally with the Philistines. And they didn't have sense enough to separate from that culture. They were just glued to it. And had, somebody had to start a fight to get polarization, cultural and political polarization, get this, these two away from each other. So he rose up, raised up this guy, and you know you can imagine how this man worked. I mean, his life is a tremendous illustration of how God can use people in odd ways. Uh, it would be a very interesting biblical uh, film that somebody made all the way from Balaam's ass to Samson, uh, treating all the odd ways God used very unspiritual vessels to accomplish His purpose. And in the case of Samson, his whole objective was to start a war and to create polarization. And you remember one of the gimmicks that he did? He waited until harvest time when the whole, think about it, the nation's economy in those days wasn't manufacturing. It wasn't service industries. The economy in those days was an agricultural economy. And, you know, if you're around farmers, you know what an awful, scary life farming is because you invest everything and, and if the crop doesn't come in you get all your investment eggs in one basket here. So what does Samson do? He takes foxes, waits till the harvest time and puts torches on the tails and sends them through the wheat fields, burns them all up. Now that didn't go over too well with the Philistine farmers and so forth and it goes on and on and on and how does he end his life? Takes down the temple and kills himself and everybody in the temple. Avenge me, O God, he says, and he crushes the thing. Now, the Holy Spirit indwelt him for those tasks. That was part of God's ministry to the nation. It was physical, it was cultural, it had all kinds of semi semi or even non-spiritual things to it. So if you look at Table 5, it was a job-centered ministry to further the purpose of God for the nation Israel. It was limited to only some believers and possibly even occurred with unbelievers. Certainly occurred with the donkey, Balaam's donkey. He was uh, indwelt. The Holy Spirit worked in him. If you don't want to call indwelling, he worked with him. Uh, Psalm 51, David prays that the, the Holy Spirit not be taken from him, which in context, if you read 1 Samuel, David had watched the Holy Spirit taken from whom? Saul. And when the Holy Spirit left Saul, what was it a sign of? That he lost his salvation? No. It was a sign that he had lost out as a dynasty. So the Holy Spirit's indwelling of the king was a dynastic seal. So when the Holy Spirit indwelt Saul, it was indwelling Saul for the purpose of ruling and have his family be the dynasty, the royal family of Israel. And when he pulled him, and he bestowed the Holy Spirit over here on David, that was a transfer, dynastic transfer. So you have a complete monarchial line that's going on there. It wasn't just 
spiritual life stuff. This was, there was a lot more to it than that. And so David, in Psalm 51, after he sinned, he prays that he, the Lord not take his Holy Spirit from him, meaning I don't want to lose the dynastic position I have here. And in 2 Kings 2.9, remember Elisha uh, followed on Elijah, and he asked that the Holy Spirit work in his life like he had in Elijah's life. And in Luke 11, the Lord Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit will be given to those who ask for him. And that was during the disciples' ministry before the church. Now, after Pentecost, what do we have? We have a life-centered ministry to make eternal fellowship with God a present reality. So the job here has changed, and the manifestation of indwelling has changed, and the indwelling is now indwelling this... Oh, and by the way, the image... I forgot to tell you about that. The image here for indwelling is a temple just like the image for regeneration is creation, the image for indwelling is a temple. God indwells a temple. So he indwells this regenerate nature and energizes it. Second line you see in table 5 in the right column, it was universal for all and only believers. Romans 8, 9 says, if you have not the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. So there's the indwelling Holy Spirit co-terminus with salvation. Third, which we'll get into tonight if we have time, sealing, Ephesians 4.30 says we're sealed with it. It's permanent. It's not temporary like David. Furthermore, fourth one, it's automatic. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is never something that is asked for in the New Testament, other than that Luke passage prior to Pentecost. So the indwelling occurs, we believe, at the point of regeneration. There's no other command to, to, to ask for it throughout the whole Bible. It's presumed that Christians have it, Romans 8 9. Okay, so there's an idea of the difference between indwelling in the Old Testament, indwelling in the New, and you can see that indwelling in the New has a particular purpose of energizing the church and building it up and strengthening it, energizing the, uh, the uh, new nature. Now, on page 52, last paragraph of that section, just before the word baptism that's underlined, you'll see the, uh, an, um, an effect of this. You know, when you learn a Bible truth, one of the disciplines you need to do, and a lot of Christians don't do this, one of the things you need to do when you learn something from the Word of God is ask the Lord to open your eyes to the implications so that, okay, if this is true, what are the consequences of this? So I asked myself, you know, okay, we talk about the indwelling Holy Spirit. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 says the local church is a temple. Um, in 1 Corinthians 6, he says the body, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Well, what else? What are the implications? There are some implications, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6. Watch how Paul carries those implications out. Uh, one of those, 1 Corinthians 6, is be careful what you do with your body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Body is important. 1 Corinthians 3 says the local church is important. It's a temple. It's where the Holy Spirit dwells. It's not talking about a building now. It's talking about a group of believers. Well, here's one more implication. In that paragraph, in the center sentence, you see where the doctrine of indwelling 
with its temple imagery offends all advocates of religious pluralism by its dogmatic exclusivity. What do I mean by that sentence? Next sentence. The church is the only place of salvation on earth. What was the temple for? Any temple. To go to meet God. So if the church is the temple, then what follows? What's the consequence of that? Saying the church is the temple and God in this age, in this history. Because that's the only place you can meet God. What do we mean? Let's spell it out. How does anybody meet God? Through the gospel. And who propagates the gospel? Local church. So you have to come in contact with some church activity, be it the Bible translation that was done by some Christians. Uh, you have to come in contact with someone who witnesses, shares the gospel with you. So somewhere you have to be in touch, some in contact. So the church is the point of contact. That's why the church sends missionaries out into all kinds of cultures, because it's the point of contact. So if the church is the temple, then it means that that's the place where people come to meet God. Okay, now we move to the third doctrine. And this is the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a little complicated because of the image. Again, review. The image of regeneration is creation. The image of indwelling is a temple. The image of baptism is judgment salvation. In other words, it's being identified with either judgment or being identified with being saved. It's a separation. It's an identification. The primary meaning is to identify. Now, as I said in that last paragraph on page 52, translators of the Bible, the English Bible, have traditionally cheated here. Because down through the church has always been this argument about immersion versus sprinkling. Well, the translators didn't want to get into all that, so they backed off. And what did they do? They transliterated the Greek verb. The Greek verb is baptizo. So they said, be baptized. Well, that was cute because it got them off the hook. So now everybody in English reads, oh, they're going to baptize. And, and uh, you've asked the translator, this guy will say, if he's Presbyterian or Covenant or something, he'll say he's indwelling, if this guy's a Baptist, he could be a Reformed Baptist or not, but the point is, he believes in immersion. So the translators left it up to the Christians to fight it out. But they didn't want to take a position, whether it means immersion or sprinkling. And really the word can't be said to be any of that. If you want to look at the way it's used, it's more, the core meaning seems to be more identification. And the table six on page 53 shows you the surprisingly wide variations to this word, baptize, and how it's used in the Bible. There's actually um, seven ways it's used, and you could count the first one, Noah's, uh, the Noah's baptism, as a sort of use of the word, although the word really in First Peter isn't talk, calling Noah's flood a baptism. The imagery, though, the imagery of Noah's flood is taken as the backdrop for baptism. To turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. In verse um, 20, 
1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. You'll see it says the spirits... Uh, we'll get in, that's a whole other story. The spirits who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, the water judged and it saved, did it not? Drowned all the unbelievers and the water saved the believers. So, during the construction of the ark in which a few eight persons were brought safely through the water and corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the problem with passages like that. The first problem is getting the imagery wrong. And the best thing to do when you look through the, all the cases of the baptism is ask yourself, what's the earliest historical event that comes into association with that word? It's right here. The earliest event in the program and progress of revelation in the Bible that's associated with baptism is Noah's flood. And what do we know about Noah's flood from the way we've handled it? What event, what doctrinal connection? Judgment and salvation. Just like Exodus. Remember the two events? Noah's flood, Exodus. Both was grace before judgment. There was only one way of salvation. It was God's judging men. They had to trust, trust the Lord's promise in order to be saved. So, two pictures of judgment salvation, Noah's flood and the Exodus. Well, isn't it interesting that when Peter wants to illuminate the word baptism, what is the imagery he pulls up? Noah's flood. Okay. Now, if you look in the left column of table six, you'll see that every one of these baptisms is dry. Now, I deliberately do this because all of us, because we keep thinking of baptism in terms of the ritual of baptism, every time we see that word baptizo in the text, we think in terms of the ritual of baptism. And there we have to be careful. Not true. Not true. The word baptizo used in the text means identification, and it can mean either it's dry or it's wet. So let's work our way through quickly, just table six, and see if we can come to some overall conclusions. First, you have Noah as, as, a, as more of a, an image generator. But the next one, and I give you the verses in, in this context, uh, that paragraph just above table six gives you all the Bible references. Um, you have the case where uh, Moses' baptism, 1 Corinthians 10.2, it's said to be Moses' baptism. Who got wet? Yule Brunner. Right? Okay, so it was the Egyptians that got wet. Who got dry? It was the Jews. So Moses' baptism doesn't mean people got wet. The people who were saved were dry. So the word baptized in that case can't refer to being wet per se. It's referring to something else. There's another meaning here that the author uses baptism for. Noah's baptism means somehow these people are identified with Moses and what God was doing with Moses at that point in space-time history. They were identified with Moses. Moses' baptism. But it involved water as a background image because what was going on? The baptism they're talking about is walking right through the Red Sea dry. 
So it's judgment salvation. Exodus. So now isn't this new? First one was Noah. Next one is Exodus. You begin to get the flavor of the word baptize. Third one. This is remarkable. In Mark 10, Jesus says, I will be baptized. This is after his water baptism. What does he mean by this baptism? It's the cross. It's the baptism of the cross. Was Jesus wet or was he dry in the baptism of the cross? Obviously he was dry, except for his perspiration. So there, again, he's identified, he somehow participates in this gory form of capital punishment, and it's said to be a baptism of the cross. I mentioned that, too, as, as a footnote. It's interesting that I just read an exegetical study where a guy has pointed out that this may well be the solution to that text in, in Mark 16, the end of Mark's Gospel, you know, where it talks about uh, picking up snakes and doing all that stuff, and, and, and Jesus says he's not baptized, uh, believe in being baptized, and so on. He points out, if you look carefully, look carefully, at the context of Matthew, Mark 16, you'll see that Jesus isn't talking to Christians, the church. He's talking only to a select group of his close associates there, his disciples, who will be the ones who go out as apostles. And he's angry at them in the context of Mark 16 because they didn't believe. And he says, you're going to go out and you're going to believe and be baptized. And this man suggests, the, in context, if you look in a concordance and you expand out from Mark 16 and you go back in the text of Mark 16 the previous use of the word baptized by Mark is Mark 10 and in Mark 10 what does the word baptized mean? Cross martyrdom so he's suggesting that the word baptized in Mark 16 is talking not about water baptism at all it's talking about martyrdom he who believes in me goes out and preaches this gospel and is martyred. It undergoes the pressure. Uh, he will be saved in the sense of being delivered. I'm not going to debate that, but I'm just pointing out that as an illustration that every time we see the word baptized, do not think of the ritual of water baptism. Finally, in John the Baptist speaks of two different baptisms, the baptism of fire and the baptism of the Spirit. So now we've got one, two, three, four, possibly five uses of the word baptized, none of which are wet. All of which have as their, when, if you take the verb, baptize, okay, let's, hear, let's get this verb down, baptize, in these four instances, what's the subject of the verb baptize? Or I should say, who is the subject? The subject of the verb is the verb is active voice. Who does the baptizing in every case of here? It's God. Not, man's not involved in this. Every one of these is God is doing the one through his sovereign providence. God is the one who does the baptizing. And water is not involved. Well, it's involved, but it's not. People don't get wet that are saved. Baptism of fire surely isn't wet. That's talking about the judgment to come. And the spirits the salvation. So you see judgment salvation there. All right, let's go to the right side of the table six. Now here we have wet rituals. We have John's baptism, which was given to Jews 
And what was the function of John's baptism? To identify believing Jews as the royal remnant, as the remnant, the loyal remnant that were prepared for whom? For the Messiah who's to come. The Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. He's coming. The kingdom of God is at hand. He's, it's coming. It's imminent. It's going to happen. So, John's baptism is a ritual. Now, in that case, of the ritual baptized, who does, who's the verb of the verb baptized there? God or man? Man. So now, isn't this interesting? These are four dry. These are three wet. So, see, you've got to be careful about reading your Bible and about what words mean. Second baptism was Jesus' baptism. John did it, but it was Jesus that was being baptized. And there, he himself identifies himself with the coming kingdom. Now, did Jesus need to be baptized to be forgiven from sin? Surely not. So this baptism had nothing to do with sin. It has to do with identification of Jesus Christ with God's kingdom. Now, we come to the third one, Christian baptism which we are all familiar with. I don't have to you know, make a big thing about that. So this is just kind of a, a survey to, in preparation for teaching spirit baptism. What does spirit baptism mean now? It's one of those dry baptisms. It's obviously an imagery. And what does the spirit, bapti uh, what does the spirit baptism do? Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians 12. Because Paul develops um, the, the idea of baptism several places. Romans 6 is one place where he develops this baptism. People always want to read ritual, water, Christian baptism in Romans 6. Not necessarily there. Um, in 1 Corinthians 12, he's talking about spiritual gifts in this. He's talking about manifestation. And then he says, in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 12, what is the result? All, not some, but by one span. By the way, this is addressed to a real spiritual church, isn't it? I mean, these people got drunk at communion. And it says, by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And he talks about the body, and he's developing the concept of the body of the church. So, spirit baptism results in the calling out. It's, it's a picture of the separation of the population and being identified with this thing called the church. And ritual baptism is just a way of expressing that reality. But the Holy Spirit says, he says, we are all by one spirit baptized into one body. And the body in the context is talking about the universal church. So, the function of baptism is that it creates the church. 
Now, when did spirit baptism start? When does the church start? Well, if baptism causes the church, then the beginning of baptism, uh, spirit baptism, must be the beginning of the church. So now, here's a timeline. Here's the death of Christ. Here's the virgin birth. Here's the ascent into heaven. Here's the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Now, the question is, where on this timeline do we put the beginning of the church? So, the church, some theologians down through history, Roman Catholic theologians, for example, uh, many in the Reformed camp, uh, would say, well, we use the word church to refer to all believers. In other words, there was a church in the Old Testament. And so, but what they're talking about there is all believers. Without looking at the distinctions down through history. Okay? What we're asking is another question. When did the church, in the sense of the body of 1 Corinthians 12, when did that start? And in page 54 of your notes, I give you four arguments why it had to have started on the day of Pentecost. That it's the day of Pentecost when the church formed. Now notice, I did not say that the church was recognized at that time as a separate entity. We're going to get into that next, next time. That's the next event. But in, in actual reality, the church was born that day on Pentecost. The four arguments are, Paul teaches that the church is a mystery not revealed in the Old Testament. Therefore, it could not have begun before John the Baptist. Second, Jesus taught that it was future to his time because in Matthew 16, what did he say? What was the tense of the verb when he said, I build my church? I have built my church, I am building my church, or I will build my church. Future. So it's future to Matthew 16. So the church did not begin during the earthly ministry of Jesus. Third argument. The church depends upon an ascended and seated Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, it had to originate after the ascension and session. In the Ephesians passage. Finally, the spirit baptism prophesied by Jesus to occur after his session occurred first day of Pentecost. It's the baptism of the spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul identifies that as that which generates the church. Conclusion the church began on the day of Pentecost. Now, there's certain implications. And on page 55 of your notes, that's all we'll have time to look at tonight, on page 55 of your notes, there's some implications of this doctrine of baptism. So, we, we'll finish all the ribs plus ISG next time, but so far we've got to RIB, Regeneration Indwelling Baptism. Now, some, some of the implications. First paragraph, page 55. Some Christians, particularly those influenced by Pentecostal theology, insist that after one believes, one still needs a post-salvation experience of, quote, Holy Ghost baptism. Now, you may run into this. Some of the books, by the way, written uh, probably between... 1900 and 1920, if 
you look at the dates of books. This was a, was a thing that was quite popular, even among what we would consider more orthodox people, Holy Ghost baptism. The problem is that it was seen to be something that occurred after baptism, and it's, it was usually done because, oh, well, in Acts 8, the baptism came after, you know, the, the Samaritans believed, and then it came afterwards. The problem with that is you can't take one of the models from Acts, because if we go back to that diagram we drew before, there's the diagram of, the, of Acts, and look at you've got one, two, three, four different occurrences, and they're all different. So which one are you going to make to be your model? You make one, I'll make the other one. So now what are you going to do? So you can't use Acts as a model. You have to come to a conclusion of teaching of the baptism of the Spirit out of doctrine of the New Testament. So we say then that the church, which we are calling the universal church, so let's get the vocabulary. can't think without an accurate vocabulary. Church is being used, as I'm using it here, to mean believers since the day of Pentecost. Okay? Believers who are baptized into the body of Christ. It is the universal church. Not talking right here about local churches. Talking about the universal church. Theologians sometimes call this the invisible church. Why do you suppose theologians call it the invisible church? Are we all invisible? No. What they're saying is that it can't be identified with any physical social group of people because you could have 122 church members and maybe 92 are born again. So the, un, the universal church doesn't correspond to church membership. It doesn't correspond to this denomination or that denomination. You can have believers and unbelievers in any denomination. Being a member of a denomination doesn't prove you're a Christian just means you're identified yourself socially as, as, a, as a Christian. But it doesn't mean you're really born again, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. So that's what we mean by universal church. Now, if you really want to cause some controversy sometime, try this one. What was the first great church creed? Apostles' Creed. Think about the Apostles' Creed. What is the title for the universal church in the Apostles' Creed? The Holy, Catholic, and Apostolic Church. Now, we live in an area of, of a lot of Roman Catholicism, and I'm sure the average person in the street thinks of that as the Roman Catholic Church. But let's watch the words. Holy, Catholic, Apostolic. Now, can you see how those can be used to describe the universal church? Not the Roman Catholic organization. I'm talking about the set of all believers. Is that universal church holy in the sense, not of personal merit, but sharing the holiness of God through Jesus Christ? Yeah. Right? First John 3. Seed abides in him, the tulip that grows up from the ground. The substitutionary blood atonement, covering our sin? Sure did. Okay, let's look at the next word. Catholic. What does that mean? It's universal. Catholic means universal. That's what's a paradox about Roman Catholics. The word Catholic means all areas. And then they tack on Rome in front of it. One area. 
So it's a really ironic title, Roman Catholic. Uh, Anglican Catholics, another one. Anglican Catholic, English Catholic. Well, wait a minute, hold it. You can't have both names. You gotta have one or the other. It's the Roman Church or the Catholic Church, but you can't have the Roman Catholic Church. Anymore you can have the Anglican Catholic Church. This is just another word for universal church. Okay, let's look at the third word, apostolic. In what sense is the universal church of genuine born-again believers apostolic? Let's think about this one for a minute. Now, down through history, the Roman Catholic Church and the Anglican Church have insisted on a particular meaning for this. Anybody know what it is? Apostolic succession, meaning that you had to have a continuous line, like Peter blessed this guy and got him on the rolls, and this guy who became a bishop, and he, had, he, he laid his hands on this guy, who laid his hands on this guy, who laid his hands on this guy, who laid his hands on this guy, on this guy oh, down through the centuries, until we have a guy here who's bishop, and he's been had his hands commissioned, hands were laid on his head by somebody who had hands laid on his head, who had hands laid by his head, all the way back here to Peter. That's called apostolic succession. That's their interpretation of this word. That's why they can say they're the only church in town, because they're the only ones that can trace apostolic succession, they claim, whether they can or can't. I haven't even studied that. But the problem with that is, that's not really the meaning of the word apostolic. Apostolic means you follow what the apostles taught. And where do you find what the apostles taught? What the apostles wrote called the New Testament. So, we could say that this is the Holy, Universal, and New Testament Church. That's what we're talking about. And that's what the, the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit does. So, we finished four of the doctrines. We'll finish the uh, three of the doctrines. We'll finish the, the uh, other three uh, next week. And then we'll go on and move on further throughout the, the framework. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that we'd be in one big mess if it wasn't for the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit, if it wasn't for his work in regenerating us, creating that new nature within, a nature which is inviolable, which is perfect, which cannot be destroyed by Satan, a nature which is the springboard and the source of the indwelling, or the location where the Holy Spirit can indwell and perform His work and His activities in our life. We're thankful for the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. In some way, He joined us together with one Spirit. We thank You for our identification with His work in this age. We thank you for all these things through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We have some, I guess, some minutes. Better? Okay. All right. Um, so, questions? Discussion? Yes, Debbie. Thank you, Debbie.
Old reliable Debbie. <laughs> question. The question is in Ephesians 5, so maybe if we all turn to Ephesians 5, we, we can talk about that. At the same time you're turning to Ephesians 5, uh, if you have uh, manual dexterity and can turn to Colossians also at the same time, Colossians chapter 3. Uh, Debbie has raised the issue. Of, uh, of course, I had said that there's no uh, command in the New Testament to be indwelt. However, in Ephesians 5, there is a command given to believers to be filled. So what's that? All right, what Debbie has pointed out is where the confusion came at the beginning of this century. Devotional writers who spoke of the Holy Ghost baptism, like R.A. Torrey, for example. He's a good example of this. R.A. Torrey was a solid Bible-teaching guy. But he used the terminology Holy Ghost baptism for filling. And the act in verse 15, uh, in, in 5.18, I mean, chapter 5, verse 18, be not drunk with wine or his dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Be subject one to another in the fear of Christ. And then he goes on to expand all the results of the filling of the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit is commanded and is an act and is parallel to many of the other imperatives in the New Testament. But it's not talking about this thing that we're talking about of the Holy Spirit coming to indwell and staying there permanently. Obviously, if it's a command, and the believers can lose it. So the filling has to be distinguished from indwelling. That is what was not done between 1900 and 1920, particularly through the writings of R.A. Torrey. And at the end of the 20s and 30s, people got really confused about this because this word was just slapped out there and there, there's two different things going on here. Let me show you why. The if you do a, uh, an uh, outline of Ephesians 5 and you outline the sequence of subjects in Ephesians, I mean the whole epistle of Ephesians, <clears throat> but look particularly while you're in Ephesians to the result of the filling of the Spirit. Look at the results, what follows verse 18. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. By the way, that's not speaking necessarily in other languages. It just says songs, hymns and spiritual songs, singing a melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things. Now, that's a result of filling the Holy Spirit, giving thanks. But giving thanks is also an imperative elsewhere, isn't it? In everything give thanks, First Thessalonians 5.
verb, obligation, act. Then it says, and be subject, verse 21, be subject one to another. And then it talks about, wives, be subject to your husbands. And it keeps on going on and on. Husbands, love your wives, verse 28. It, it spells out the social results of filling of the Holy Spirit. Clearly, this is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. Clearly, it is founded on the indwelling. The indwelling is the foundation for this this other ministry that's going on here. Now, hold on to Ephesians 5 and flip over to Colossians chapter 3. If you look at the logic of the epistle to the Colossians, Paul talks about putting on, you know, peace of Christ. Look at verse 15, Colossians 3:15. But the peace of God rule in your peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called, one body, and be thankful. Let the word of now look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of Jesus, giving thanks through God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Does that look familiar? It's exactly the text of Ephesians 5. What conclusion would you come to about Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.18? They must be parallel. Okay? Now... Look at verse 16 in Colossians 3. Does the word of Christ come to us? It comes to us at the time of regeneration, does it not? Right? That's, that's how we're begotten. That's how regeneration happens. The word of Christ begets us. But the, because we're begotten doesn't mean that the word of Christ is dwelling richly, willingly. We can resist it. So now turn back to Ephesians. It's the same principle. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell, but he can be resisted. And that's what's grievous about sin. Because in Ephesians 4, verse 30, what does it say we do when we sin? We grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, if he didn't indwell us, he'd take off. But he sticks around. And, the, and this is one of the implications. Uh, I think I mentioned it in the notes, and I didn't do that tonight. But one of the other consequences of the doctrine of indwelling is that the Holy Spirit is so close to us that when we sin, it's just like we rub it in his face. So it really, when you start to think of it, it makes you a little more horrified at your personal sin because it means that it's not like he's a thousand miles away and he's got a buffer zone between all our crud and his holiness. No. He's in us. Talk about, you know, getting it in his face. Every one of our slimy little thoughts, every one of our fits of anger uh, is, is right there, right in his face. That's the doctrine of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So it's a convicting consequence if you think it through. Not a nice thing. I mean, it's empowering. It's nice to know that. It's nice to know that the wicked one cannot touch that regenerate nature. Nice to know that. But it's also very convicting to know that he's right there in the middle of a very uh, of a cesspool from his point of view. And so, 
the filling of the Holy Spirit is a word, a plethora. It's not talking about indwelling. It's talking about the Holy Spirit controlling and influencing and allowed to dominate us. But see, that's a choice. And that does change. And so when we get into the filling, which we're not going to get into in the association with Pentecost, but that's coming, we'll see that it's another synonymous way of expressing all the other imperatives in the New Testament. Being filled with the Spirit is like letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. Can any of you think, uh, this is all Pauline, Colossians and Ephesians, it's Paul's words. Can any of you think, what would you think is the analogy or the synonym that if John the Apostle were teaching us, what is his vocabulary expression for the same thing? What does he say over and over in his epistle? Abide. Exactly. And it's a command. Notice, abide. It's in the imperative mood. If, if it's a command, it's obviously something addressed to us. So, John tends to use the word meno in the Greek, which is abide. Paul uses a variety of texts, but the word of Christ dwell in you richly, be filled with the Spirit, etc., etc. The thing you want to avoid about Ephesians 5.18 is getting too spooky. You, it's easy to read into Ephesians 5.18 a Pentecostal type thing because it's talking about hymns and spiritual songs and you, it takes but a short feel of imagination to think about speaking in tongues, etc. But that really isn't the emphasis there. The emphasis there is the thankfulness, it's the mental attitude, it's the, the singing of the hymns is not an unconscious thing. And in fact, if you look at the handout, or look at the notes I think we handed out last time. Under this R-I-B-S, we'll, we'll quickly go through S, which is sealing, next time. But look at what the I, intercession. And pay attention to Romans chapter 8. The verses that I quote in Romans 8, when I talk about the Spirit's intercession for us. Remember that passage in Romans, intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered? Now, in the 1900 to 1920, when everybody was talking about this Holy Ghost baptism thing, they would quote Romans 8, where it talks about the Holy Spirit helps us with groanings that cannot be uttered, and the groanings that cannot be uttered there were, were languages, foreign languages or a heavenly tongue. Well, the complication of that is that, that is a, tongues after Pentecost is a spiritual gift, but that's taught in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and it's clearly taught that it is not universal to all believers. Paul says, do all teach? Do all speak in tongues? The answer is no. All do not. So that's talking about a gift that is not universal. The indwelling of the Spirit is universal. Filling of the Holy Spirit should be, but it's contingent, contingent upon our our response. So, in that passage in Romans 8, read for next week. Try to read through that carefully. And here's the question you want to work with as you read through that text. If the Holy Spirit is praying with groanings that cannot be uttered, ask yourself the following questions. To whom is he praying? That's interesting. To whom does the Holy Spirit pray? 
and see if you can find out in the context which of the Trinity he's praying to. Secondly, when you're in that passage, there's a hint given in the context over what the Holy Spirit is praying about. Then, after you've thought about to whom the Holy Spirit is praying, and you've thought about what it is he's praying about, see if you can come up with your own ideas about what does it mean, the groanings that cannot be uttered. And if you have a concordance, check that word out and see where it's used elsewhere. And you may come to a very interesting conclusion. Romans, what? Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 26. Let me uh, get the whole context for you here. Romans chapter 8. This has always struck me as a very fascinating passage about what the Holy Spirit does in us. Um, Romans 8, 26 uh, through 27. There's a lot in there. That's the famous Romans 8, 28 context. But uh, look at 26 and 27. There's a lot in those. Just two verses. That's all it is. Two verses. But those two verses are really loaded. They are loaded with heavy stuff. And it's very encouraging stuff. And it's one of those cases where you can hear sermons thousands of times in your life and yet you come into the details of texts like verse 26, 27 and you think, well why didn't someone tell me about that? Why is it that I can you know, go for years in my Christian life and never hear that teaching? And it's just, really we have a lot of sloppy, hasty teaching going on and it doesn't grab the details of the text. But there's tremendous things here for us, and this is why I hope as we go through these things, I've already, when you get done with this chapter, we're going to have at least six things that you know now, and you're probably in the top 8%, 5% of the Christians walking around today, who can tell you what concrete, doctrinal, scriptural things the Holy Spirit has done. And be able to say, you know, drive along and say, well, thank you, Lord. You know, I can give him thanks. I might not be able to give him thanks for the thorns and the thistles, although he can work those together for good. But by golly, in the middle of this, if there's nothing else, I can thank him for my regeneration. Because I couldn't do that. I can thank him that he's seen fit to indwell me. Think about it. The Holy Spirit, at the point of salvation, started residence in you. The Holy Spirit took up residence. What a powerful idea. The Holy Spirit has baptized... Yes, Lord. What was that? Uh-huh. Okay, Lord's asking, why in the Old Testament did the Holy Spirit work in a temporary way, whereas now he works a permanent way. In the Old Testament, he worked from the outside in, because in the Old Testament they had something analogous to what we call regeneration. You know what it was? Spiritual circumcision. Circumcision of the heart. Now, obviously the people didn't do that. Somehow that was done. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit illuminated people's hearts, 
but he didn't he, he, he's not said to be in them in the Old Testament. In fact, in John 14, I believe it's in John 14, there's a verse that says, he is with you, but he will be in you. Two different prepositions. So clearly Jesus was teaching that difference. In the Old Testament, there was a different ministry. Why is it different? I think it has to do with the entire issue of what the church is. The church age is remarkably different from any other age in church history. I mean, in biblical history, not church history. Uh, the church has a unique structure. It's in union with a resurrected Christ. No saint in the Old Testament could have been union with a resurrected Christ because there wasn't any resurrected Christ. So the Holy Spirit worked. We're not saying he wasn't there. He worked. But he worked differently. He works today externally, too. I mean, he's the one that handles providence issues. He's the one that raises up kings. And he's the one that deals with war and all the rest because he's the agent that's going around different things. But his unique ministry, his saving, redeeming ministry is centered in a location. In the Old Testament, his redeeming ministry was with the nation Israel from Abraham on. Now, where was the Holy Spirit working prior to the call of Abraham? Let's think about that one since Laura's brought it up. Let's go back another dispensation. Let's go back at, before Israel. What was the Holy Spirit doing? Anybody think of a, of a text that tells us what the Holy Spirit was doing before um, we can infer something from Genesis 14. Who came out to meet Abraham? guy with this strange guy by the name of Melchizedek, who happened to be apparently a godly king, one of the last surviving remnants of the Noahic colonizers, who was a, a believer, who, in whose life the Lord worked, had taught him about communion. Uh, so there was a lot of a lot of teaching of some sort going on among Gentiles prior to the call of Abraham. Um, prior to the flood, what was the ministry of the Holy Spirit then? It's even stated. Because God, when he comes to Noah and he announces the judgment, what does he say? My spirit shall what? Shall not strive with man any longer. So what would you say the Holy Spirit's ministry was before the flood? Restraining sin. Does he restrain sin today? Yes. Was he restraining sin then? Yes. Has he changed that? No. See, a lot of things are continuous. Some things are discontinuous. And that's the, the thing in Scripture. Was salvation the same to Abraham? Was he saved by faith? Yes. Are we saved by faith? Yes. Has that changed? No. Is the basis of salvation changed? No. Every saint was saved on the basis of the atonement of Christ. It hadn't come off yet, but they were saved in anticipation of the finished work of Christ. So has the basis of salvation changed? No. Well, then what's changed? The content of the gospel has changed. The gospel that we preach has a lot more content in it than what Abraham could believe in, right? We got a lot more centuries of revelation since Abraham. Is our gospel different from Moses? Yeah. It's got a lot more in it than Moses had. So some things have changed. But the basics have not changed. They remain the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. 
Yes. I think one of the things that I thought about with that was how we get this idea once in a while that Old Testament believers weren't at the, the height of faith that we had, you know, that they hadn't arrived because they did some old speculation of Enoch. But then when you go back and you read the genealogy and you see that Enoch, Enoch walked with God and mm-hmm. so forth, mm-hmm. and he had such a relationship with God that he just disappeared. Then you realize that they had just as deep of a relationship with God as we do today, but it was just on different terms. It was, God was doing a slightly different thing in their lives than he is in our lives, but that's not saying they didn't have a personal relationship. And you know, one of the... Right. They were, they, they were deep. I mean, think of the Psalms. Why do we today, in the church age, why do we get such a devotional power out of reading the Psalms? You know, just reading in Newsweek this week, they got the story of Beamer, the Christian guy who was on Flight 93 that crashed in the, up here in Pennsylvania. And uh, what was it that he recited right before he said, okay, guys, let's roll. We're going to get these guys. Psalm 23. Here he is in the middle of a disaster situation. A Christian guy. And he's fearful. I mean, these guys got razor blades and they've already killed people. But we're not going to let them take out another target in this country. We're going to stop these guys now. And then he cites Psalm 23. What gives that power out of the psalm? Because David had a wonderful relationship with the Lord. Was it spirit-given? Sure it was spirit-given. But the ministry of the Holy Spirit in David's life was directed to empowering him as king, empowering him as a writer of the book of Psalms. What's the ministry in the church age? That we would be occupied with Jesus Christ and be his representatives. We are said to be his ambassadors. You know, the ambassador. So that's the work the Holy Spirit's doing. Now, the fact that he's in us, and in those guys, he would come in and out and work all around him. I don't profess to know all that. I'm just saying the text says there's something different here. And it is related to the fact that we have the content that they did not have. They could not have known all the details about Jesus Christ. David could not see, except in the vision of Psalm 22. And it seems like if you read this, and and scholars who have studied the, the Hebrew text carefully have noticed this, that when these guys wrote these juicy texts, like Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They must have been in almost a state of suspended consciousness in which they saw in a vision these things. certainly didn't make them up. And in those visionary experiences they had as they were penning the scriptures, they faithfully recorded what they saw in these visions. But they didn't understand them. Because what does Peter say? There's a passage in Peter that talks about the Spirit in the Old Testament. He says they couldn't understand the things the Spirit testified of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. They couldn't get it together. Did not know what is going on. All I know is God says he's going to come down. He's going to be glorious. We're going to have a glorious kingdom. On the other hand, we're talking about a suffering servant. He's, you can't recognize him. He's been our sacrifice. How the heck could we fit this together? They didn't know didn't have a clue. Did they walk by faith? Yes. Faith in what? 
the fact that God's a rational God, and he'll get it together somehow, but I don't know what he's doing. Doesn't that sound familiar? Okay, well, we'll come next week and we'll finish up this uh, chapter.